Okay, turn with me to Acts 19, and I'm going to start in verse 23 to 29, and then we're going to skip over a couple of verses, then go from 34 to 41. Acts 19, verses 23. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which had made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they, that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and, her, and the magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Arch and Tarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companion in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. Verse 34. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of Ephesus is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet, and do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies, let, let them implied one of another." But if ye acquire, inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day, for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby the, we may give an account of this concourse. And when they had thus spoken, he dismissed, he dismissed the assembly. Maybe seated. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. And from that verse, I have taken the title for the sermon today, Always with Grace, Seasoned with Salt. Always with Grace, Seasoned with Salt. Now, on this date in 1931, there was a baby born in to Kristen's Sevilla Kaufman. It was their firstborn. It was a son. They named his they named him Raymond. Eighty-eight years ago today, and if my dad was still living, yep, he would be eighty-eight now. <clears throat> now Father's Day is past seven whole days ago. But I'm thinking this morning about my dad and 
some of the things that he taught or should have been able to teach me, uh, some of his strong points. And one of those strong points was how that he used care in using his tongue. You might remember that about my dad. He was not um, the most windy person. He was not the kind of man that needed to be in the limelight or be in the in-group. He didn't have an awful lot to say. And I, as a child, I sometimes thought that was kind of a detriment. Um, other people's dads would talk a lot and be, have the floor. And, and my dad would just sit there and listen more so. So... My dad also wasn't the kind that used words in a bragging way or an angry way very much. So, yes, I'm thinking this morning of my dad, and I'm thinking about the title, Always with Grace, Seasoned with Salt, and I'm thinking about those words that we say, what we say every day. The Bible speaks a lot about what, uh, and gives a lot of, teaching about what comes out of our mouth. You know, we, one of God's great gifts to us is the fact that we can communicate with our mouths. And in light of that, I quote James May who said this, words are used to reveal what is really in your heart. Words are a perfect indicator of your character. The words you speak, the things you talk about, and the manner in which you say them will ultimately create the image of who you are and what you are all about to everyone around you. When you think of it in that way, what you say and how you say it are incredibly important. And we agree with Mr. May, do we not? So let's think a, a bit more about our tongue, and what comes out of our mouth, and our speech, uh, the way that we communicate. Yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about that. For, let's confine our study today, as we think of this, the, fir the first point in the sermon, uh, basically to the book of Proverbs. So you might want to be turning a, a while to the book of Proverbs. There's plenty more about on this subject throughout the rest of the Bible. And a challenge to you, you that need a challenge, is to read and to discover and to study and to obey some more what is written elsewhere in Scripture about this of speech. And to notice everything that God says on this subject. So first, Two major points. First, we want to look in the book of Proverbs about what God says there. And then secondly, we'd like to move to the New Testament and look, notice a few examples, especially in the book of Acts. And you're thinking already about the portion that John just read a few minutes ago. In all of this, we look to Jesus for our help. We looked, the, he's the author and finisher of our faith. It's not my dad, but my Jesus that is our example ultimately. And I thank God, and I, I think you do too, for his Holy Spirit working within us and, and 
molding and shaping us into the people that we should be, even in this area of speech and what we say and how we say it. And my appeal to you, for you, and for me, is that we give the Holy Spirit of Christ all the room in our heart that he needs to have. As we progressively grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, in this of what comes out of our mouth and how, in what manner it comes out. So let's think about what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. And there are many attempts, not only is the tongue such a wonderful thing, we've already discussed that just a little bit, but there are temptations that go along with this wonderful gift of God. Let's notice what Solomon, what, what the Holy Spirit through Solomon talks about in the book of Proverbs about that. Tongue use temptations, temptations that come with the use of our tongue. And you might want to turn to Proverbs 4.24. Tongue use temptations. There are a number of temptations that come with our tongue and the use of it and how we use it. And I suggest, I say that one, the first one that well, there's a number. We'll, we'll talk about four. You might be thinking of more temptations in the use of your tongue. I submit that one we should talk about is one of the temptations for wrong tongue use is to use our tongue in a shifty manner. Do you know what shifty means? Shifty. To use in a shifty manner. The dictionary.com says that shifty means suggesting a a deceptive or evasive character. You know, we would say, often say lying perhaps. A little bit of shifting here and a little bit of evading there, that kind of thing. Have you thought about it that there's a couple different manifestations of lying. There's a couple different levels, perhaps, we would say of lying. There's the outright distruth, things that are completely wrong and untrue, but aren't we more often tempted to just uh, shade the truth a little bit? That's shiftiness. Just a bit, you know. And with that, uh, what does Proverbs 4.24 say? And we'll be looking at quite a number of these verses. It would be great if you would follow along. Maybe I won't be making too many comments on some of them. And others we'll look at in a bit more depth. Proverbs 4.24. Put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. And the Amplified Version, I think, talks about a froward mouth is false and dishonest, and perverse means willful and contrary. So we could say, put away from thee a false and dishonest mouth, and willful and contrary lips put far from thee. And then there is Proverbs 6.19. And here, notice, breaking in at verse 16, there are seven deadly sins that God hates. Notice that in Proverbs 6, 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And what does abomination mean? 
I understand from the dictionary that an abomination is anything greatly disliked or abhorred, intense aversion or loathing, detestation. And we understand those words and those terms. There are some things that the Lord just can't stand. He hates them. And one of them, down in verse 19, a false witness that speaketh lies. And I question for myself, uh, how can I, who professes love for Christ, love for God, who has saved me and called me to an holy calling, how can I, who profess great love for God, do things which he hates, like lying? Moving to Proverbs 12. And verses, verse 18, we're thinking about temptations uh, that come with uh, the words that we use and how we use them, and we're thinking about how one of them is to use in a shifty manner. Proverbs 12, ver breaking in at verse 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of him that imagine, in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Lying lips are, oh, there's that word again. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that dwell truly are his delight. And God is calling you and he's calling me to that today to deal truly. That's a delight to God, which is just the opposite of an abomination and the kind of thing that he hates. Thank God that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and a life of dealing truly is what he has called us to and given us grace for that. There is... Even in the 21st century and in the wicked society in which we live, in which we're a part of, there is strength and grace from God to deal truly. Oh, that that would be the case with every one of us. Proverbs 26, 28 A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruins. And I just notice that in another version, the word afflicteth, uh, afflicted is, trans, is given as wounds and crushes. So it could say, a lying tongue hateth those that are wounded and crushed by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. So one of the temptations of the wrong use of our tongue, a tongue use temptation that apparently was an issue back then and still is today, is to use in a shifty manner. There, another temptation that we should talk about is that of what I would call to use in a swaggering manner. We've just talked about how that it's a temptation to use our tongue that God has given us uh, to use that in a shifty manner, but the, there's another temptation, and that's to use in a swaggering manner. 
And I am just guessing that for you, maybe even perhaps for me, that we're more tempted, I think I'm more tempted with swaggering than shiftiness. Do you understand? To, uh, to swagger means to walk or strut with a defiant air. You know, it's someone who brags a lot, who's boastful about what he can do, who grandstands, uh, who gloats, the proud and the haughty kind of a person. And again, when someone swaggers with his words, that just means that he has proud pride and haughtiness down within, inside, because the words are only a window to our soul Proverbs 8.13, as we think about that subject of proudness, pride and haughtiness or swaggering. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. And there is that term again. God makes it so clear what he hates, what he can't stand. And one of those is pride and arrogancy. There's more in that verse, but let's just think about pride and arrogancy. Moving to Proverbs 15, 15. thinking about the swaggering person. I'm sorry, what I really meant was 10.18 in the book of Proverbs. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. Just what we would like to be, well, just exactly what we don't want to be, and that's to be a fool. To be accounted foolish in the eyes of other people is a terrible thing, we think. But it pales in comparison to being considered a fool in the God of the universe's sight. Proverbs 11.2, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. And Proverbs 15.31-33 Proverbs 15.31 the ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Thank God for the humility that he brings when we are really serious about it. Thank God for the strength to be of humility to be us, to be you, and to be me. I just remember a story that I heard from John Ulap long ago, and let me just kind of say it how I think that you said it, John. Um, you were in business, and John was in business, and Robert Miller applied to work for John. And as those arrangements were being made and maybe the interview was given. John asked Robert what he knows about building and carpentry and Robert said, well, I really don't know anything about this and I don't know anything about that or that or that. 
Well, John hired Robert and soon found out that Robert was the most dependable, the most um, teachable kind of a person. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're talking about. The temptation is to use our tongue in a swaggering manner, but God is calling us to a deep-seated humility and grace which he alone can give, but which he alone is so good at giving to those that ask. And it is good to be proud of one thing, because the Bible says, remember in the New Testament, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Might God, the God of our salvation, the God of creation, who is our Lord, he's our Savior, Oh, that we would glory in him and make him known. Well, another temptation we need to think about is we've thought about how a temptation is to use our tongue in a shifty manner and the temptation to use our tongue in a stormy manner. How about uh, in a swaggering manner, but how about to use our tongue in a stormy manner? And... I'm thinking of Proverbs 10:11, and you know, as we think about storminess, that we're talking about, oh, anger and violence. And that word violence is in Proverbs 10:11. The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. And as I think of a well of water, I think of of refreshment and thirst being quenched. What is better, what is more wonderful when one is wandering around in the desert than to come onto a well of water where none is expected? Well, yes. That's our God. To provide exactly that. Proverbs 15, verses 1, and then again in verse 4, and verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. And again, I think of refreshment and shade and coolness. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. And verse 18, still in chapter 15. A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. And then going all the way back to chapter 26. And breaking in at verse 18. As a madman who casteth firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport? Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. And it may have happened in your life, it may have happened in your experience like it has in mine that we know of people who will say, who will get kind of angry at you and then feeling a little bit bad about it, they'll smile and say, I was just basically, I was just joking. Look at verse 18 and 19 again. 
It's a temptation to use the tongue that God has given us in a stormy manner. What about when someone else approaches you and he's kind of angry and sees where you have done poorly and is kind of angry at you? Well, as I think of that, I often think of David, young David in 1 Samuel 17, and you might want to move from Proverbs for just a minute or two and go back there to 1 Samuel 17, uh, verses 28 and 29. Remember the day that David was asked by, told by his dad to go to the battlefield and bring some supplies to his brothers that were in the army. And when he got there, there was a big problem. That problem was named Goliath. But there was another problem that day because David, of all the people there in the, Isra in, in the Israeli camp, was the only one that had faith and believed that God could work and bring victory that day. And he was even humble enough to understand that that victory that's assured might even come through his human help to the Lord. But before that, he was able to do that, he had an encounter with his brother. His older brother, older and supposedly more mature, and that brother addressed him with accusations Completely unfounded accusations because earlier in the chapter the Bible expressly tells us that David had taken care of things at home, his sheep, and he had come because his dad said so. And when he got to the battlefield, his angry, bitter, older brother said, why did you come here? You just want to see what's going on and I bet you didn't even take care of those sheep. The Bible clearly says has shown us before that he had done both of those. So his completely unfounded accusations that Eliab hurled at David that day. And I love David's response and I think that is, it is so much for me, for maybe for us today. It's it's Proverbs 51, it's Proverbs 15.1 in action, I think. Remember Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turneth away wrath. Well, what David did that day when his brother accused him in front of other people at that, David, David did three things, I think. David said very little. I know that because the Bible says that he just said two things. He said, um, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? He only gave two sentences. And I, he also, something that was very wise in that setting was that he asked questions. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? So he said very little. He asked questions. And I think, without knowing for sure, that he said that in a soft calm way. Don't you think so too? Later in his life, I'm now thinking about a passage in 2 Samuel 16 verses 5 through 14. Much later in life, when David was now an old man, there was this man, Shimei, who came to David in a very low 
time in David's life, a very discouraging time, at a time when David was probably more vulnerable than he had ever, at a time when David was about as vulnerable as he had ever been, this man Shimei comes and starts fussing and fuming and throwing stones at David with completely unfounded accusations. And again, we see Proverbs 15.1 in play. It's tremendously instructive to notice. Yes, tremendously instructive to notice how David handled that situation. Um, David recognized the sovereignty of God, and he gave Shimei every benefit of a doubt, both in chapter 16, when Shimei was accusing him, and then also again in chapter 19, when Shimei came and apologized. And we're not sure, I don't know yet to this day, whether Shimei was, um, was really repentant or if he just needed, thought he needed to, to apologize because, because if not, well, there will be ramifications. But either way, he apologized and David, just in a, in a soft way, replied to him. And it's interesting to me to notice too that Abishai, if I'm pronouncing these names right, Abishai, who was one of David's most trusted soldiers and one of David's most trusted aides. We often read about Abishai in reference to David, along with David, and both times, both in, eight, in chapter 16 and again in chapter 19, Abishai said, David, why don't I just take care of him? Why don't I just kill him? And David said both times, no, 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 no. Well, we've talked about using our tongue in a shifty manner and what a temptation that is in a swaggering manner, in a stormy manner. Let's talk now about something, the temptation to use one's tongue in a superfluous manner. Superfluous manner. And maybe you know that that means extra much. Superfluous means too much, way too much. It was interesting to me in preparing for this how to notice how much the wise man Solomon, how that the wise man Solomon had so much to say about saying little, about not saying much. He had so much to say on the subject of not saying much. And as we think of this, and just before we look at lots of, a number of verses in Proverbs uh, on this subject, I would want to also say that, as the quote goes, that silence isn't always golden. Sometimes it's just plain yellow. When we talk about, and about not saying too much, because like the book of James says, that every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. When we talk about not uh, talking too much, we're not thinking of the angle of... of not talking when we should or not witnessing when the opportunity is there to witness for Christ and those kind of things but turn with me to Proverbs 10 verse 19 Solomon just has so much to say God just has so much to say in warning us not to say too much Proverbs 10:19 In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin but he that refra refraineth his lips is wise 
Over and over, this subject is addressed. He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. 15.2 The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of, pool, of fools poureth out foolishness. 15.28 the heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. 17, 27, and 28. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Um, 2123 whoso keepeth his tongue whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles if you would look in the book of Proverbs I think you'd find more on that subject maybe we've noticed enough to make the point here it's a temptation to use our tongue in a superfluous manner to use it too much to not know when we should be quiet and when we should speak as I think of this I think of my brother-in-law Bill Chup not sure if he's here today you might know that in the 80s he worked at Northern Youth Programs for 10 or 12 years worked with the First Nations people there and there was something we kept hearing there was something about them that there was something about Bill that people up there just appreciated quite a lot and then we and we also heard uh, little lines about how that the First Nations people out there think that white men talk too much and they talk too loud and they talk too fast and none of those was the case with Bill And then there's that little poem that goes, you have heard this before, and as we think about using our tongue too much, to use in superfluous manner, a wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he heard, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Oh, why can't we all be like that wise old bird? Tongue use temptations, to use in a shifty manner, to use in a swaggering manner, to use in a stormy manner, to use in a superfluous manner. Thank God that all the answers for turning that around and using it in God-given manners are given in the book and that God's grace is sufficient for us in this. If you're like me, there are areas of life of your life where you need to rededicate to God just once again and tell him, Lord, I haven't attained, but his grace is sufficient. Thank God for the Holy Spirit of God. Thank God for, for the book of God, for his, the word of God. Thank God for his strength and grace, even here in the 21st century. Moving along now and thinking about tongue use teachers we just talked about tongue use temptations uh, for a long time in 
mostly from the book of Proverbs. And again, the, the Bible says more about this subject. There's more. Maybe that's something that you would want to study and think about and learn from as we go from here. The book is large. The book is understandable. The book is for you. Let's think, moving now to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and it's long been interesting to me that in the book of Acts there are especially three men who in the midst of emotional turmoil stand up to be counted and give good, sound, calm advice. Let's just look at them real quickly. The first one is in Acts, is given, the story is given in Acts 5 verses 33 to 40 and as you're moving there you might already know that the man Gamaliel is in view here. What do you know about Gamaliel? And what do you know about the setting that was happening, that was going on? Well, the apostles, maybe it's just John and Peter, are in a trial before the Sanhedrin. And this is a desperately defensive Sanhedrin because the church of Christ that was born just weeks before, maybe or months before, on the day of Pentecost, is growing like wildfire, wildfire, and there are all kinds of miracles being done, and people are just flocking to this way. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish government as such, is realizing more and more and more that they're losing control. The situation was basically out of control, and it's obvious that they are emotionally charged and are about I'm reading between the lines perhaps, but are about ready to give the death sentence. And at that point, Gamaliel gets up and suddenly everybody gets kind of quiet because Gamaliel was a very, very respected person in their setting. He was influential, he was a teacher of the law, and he could kind of make the decision go this way or that way. All he would have had to do is just say something a little bit in a charged, emotional manner, and I think the stones would have been ready to be thrown. But instead, this Jewish man, who is not a believer, is able to pour oil on these troubled waters, and I think it's in the providence of God that he does that, and... Here we are 2,000 years later and we look at Gamaliel and we say, well, thank God for Gamaliel. Thank, uh, thank God that in his providence, in God's providence, he raised up Gamaliel to just give a few logical, sensible, calm words. He didn't succumb to tongue-use temptations, but he gave an excellent exhibition that day of proper tongue-use. And if people like you, like me, and if people like you cannot learn from that kind of thing, even though we're 2,000 years removed, um, might say pretty much about me. In a very calm, in a non-threatening manner, Gamaliel gave the church a much-needed reprieve that day and teaches for us yet today on the right use of the tongue. Tongue-use teachers, thank God for Gamaliel. I would just love to see Gamaliel in heaven someday. And then moving to 
Acts 19. And this is the passage that John read a while back. And we're especially noticing, you know, we're especially noticing the town clerk. Here there was a riot sparked by a desperately, desperate, financially threatened labor union. That's what we had called them today. There was officials in the labor union that got all bent out of shape. Why? Because they were losing money. And it might be good just to insert here that in the book of Acts, Paul was often threatened and was often persecuted by the Jewish people and sometimes by the Roman government. But basically only twice was he, was the opposition and persecution that came from the Gentile people around him. One time was in Acts 16 when it was that deal with the demon-possessed lady. Oh, yeah. That was also money, wasn't it? And the second time was here in Acts 19 when it was by these um, labor union people that were losing money. Both times they were, the Gentiles were losing money and that stirred them up like very little else did. Might that be a lesson to us? So here is this town clerk. Well, here Paul and his people were in a very dangerous situation. You know, when people riot for a couple hours just chanting the same thing over and over again, anything could happen. Anything could happen. But this town clerk, in just with just a in the providence of God, I believe he raised up that town clerk to pour oil on troubled waters. And I don't think he was a believer. He obviously wasn't a believer that day. I just really hope that he became a believer later. But the town clerk, by not succumbing to the tongue-use temptations, he gave a wonderful exhibition of proper tongue-use that day. In a calm, non-threatened manner, and just like that, the riot dissipated. Then I'm thinking of the man James, and he is talked about in Acts 15. At the Jerusalem conference, there was a big stir within the church here. So the, the first conflict that we talked about was Gamaliel. That was with the Jewish people. The second conflict was the town clerk in Ephesus. That was with Gentile people. The third conflict is a conflict within the church where... Paul and Barnabas are saying that uh, the Jewish people that are saved don't need to keep the law of Moses. And there was a big group of influential people in the church at Jerusalem that were saying, oh, yes, they do. We don't, um, they need to abide by the same standards as we do within the church. And at a critical time in that conference, in that meeting that day, James stood up. And I think, I'm guessing that the legalists, those that said, oh, but the Jews need to be, that the Gentiles are saved the same way as us Jews. We need to keep, they need to keep the law. I think when James stood up, the legalists heaved a sigh of relief because they knew what side he was on. He had always been on that side. But when he started to talk, it became obvious real soon that he has shifted his position 
in a good way now. He has shifted his position. And why did, how did he change his mind? I think he changed his mind because of what Paul and Barnabas had said and what Peter had just said. And James was able at that point, in a way that he hadn't been able to before, understand the situation and he was able to see how that scripture was on the side of Paul and Barnabas and he was not only able to see that but he was able to be humble enough to say brothers I'm changing my mind I was wrong it should be this way I'm amazed and I thank God for James and his right use of the tongue that day and he was able to use his tongue right because his heart was right so we have at different times throughout this sermon commented about how it's good not to talk quite as much. So I thought it might be fitting for the sermon not to last quite as long today, but it's not quite working out that way. I just have a few things to say about the title. Remember the title? Always with grace, seasoned with salt. And I just uh, draw your attention to the first word there, that word always. Our speech should be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Not shifting back and forth, but always. That God is calling us to a consistent speech patterns. Always. That word always. And then I see the word grace there. Always with grace, seasoned with salt. Always with grace. Grace is giving that which isn't deserved. That's one way of explaining grace. Just one way. Giving that which isn't deserved. That's what we are to give. That's what I... That's what we are to give. When people come and talk to us in a wrong way, we respond with grace and give them kindness even though they don't really deserve that. Always with grace. Seasoned with salt. What does salt do? Salt seasons. It gives appeal to foods. We understand that. Salt also preserves and salt purifies. Um, maybe the Bible doesn't talk about salt purifying too much, but I'm thinking about water softener salt, you know. How do we purify and, and get soft water? Well, we put salt in it. Water, uh, salt uh, gives appeal it preserves and it purifies. Oh, that my words, and oh, that your words, coming from pure hearts submitted to God and loving God, would always be with grace seasoned with salt. Always with grace seasoned with salt. Will you kneel with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have provided for us, even our physical makeup, and that you have given us the wonderful gift of communication using words coming out of our mouths formed by our tongue. And I pray, Lord, that we would use that wonderful privilege, that wonderful good thing that you have created for us, that we would use that in pure and right ways, and that our speech would always be pure, always with grace, seasoned with salt, Heavenly Father. I pray that as we go from here, 
as we relate with each other, as we relate with each other in our homes and at church and in our community and beyond as you send us further, that indeed our speech would be always with grace, seasoned with salt. In Jesus' name, amen.